Today, we bring you audio from the Embracing Autism IRL video podcast series. Welcome to Embracing Autism IRL. In this video series, we interview guests from a variety of backgrounds who are all linked together through autism. From advocates to therapists to parents and autistic adults, this series will take a well-rounded approach to sharing diverse perspectives on autism spectrum disorder. Our guests are encouraged to speak freely and be their authentic selves when discussing controversial yet critical topics in the autism community. If you'd like to watch the full unedited video of our interview-style podcast spinoff, Embracing Autism IRL, please subscribe to our YouTube channel of the same name and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Wish. New episodes release monthly. Without further ado, meet Kate Swenson. Hi, everyone. This is another episode of Embracing Autism IRL. Today, we have Kate Swenson. Kate Swenson is the founder of Finding Cooper's Voice and the nonprofit The More Than Project. She's the mother of four kids, a wife, and a proud Minnesotan. She writes and creates videos regularly about her life as a mother and is an autism advocate for Facebook, Instagram, and her website, Finding Cooper's Voice. Her book, Forever Boy, A Mother's Memoir of Autism and Finding Joy, is currently available and highlights the transformation that she has gone through after receiving her son's autism diagnosis. Hi, Kate. How are you doing? I'm so good. Thanks for having me tonight. Thank you so much for coming. I also wanted to share with our audience, we have some exciting news here. So Kate is actually going to be offering an opportunity to our listeners uh, to receive a free copy of her book. Um, this is, again, Forever Boy, and this is her memoir that follows her story with her and her son's diagnosis. Um, we will have two copies. Yes, and actually, <laughs> I've got mine, too. <laughs> and... Um, so we will be giving away two copies for um, the way that you would enter that essentially is just comment in this live stream. Go ahead and comment. And what we will do is we will randomly draw two people who I will then reach out to. I'll get your addresses and she will send those out to you. Um, so again, thank you so much, Kate, for that offer. Yeah, I'm excited. The more people it reaches, the better. <laughs> so uh, first, let's just start off with a little bit about yourself, your mission. Um, I know you're an autism advocate. So I just wanted to know what kind of encouraged you to start finding Cooper's voice? Yes. Yeah, so my son wasn't diagnosed with autism until he was three months shy of age four. But looking back, he could have been diagnosed really young. He was pretty classic autism, entirely nonverbal. He probably could have been diagnosed as young as nine months, to be perfectly honest. But we lived in a really rural area. So I was saying things to my doctor, but they just didn't know how to help, which is still happening today. So I actually started a blog even before he was diagnosed. And I called it Finding Cooper's Voice because I, I thought he had a speech delay. I thought he just was a late talker. So I started writing and sharing our story. And I think it was read by like nine people. I mean, it was like nothing. And then um, once we got that formal diagnosis, I just wanted to find one other kid like him. I mean, I knew it was one and back then one in 60 or one in 70, but where were they? I didn't know that they were, you know, families were isolated because I hadn't experienced it quite yet. So the Facebook page, the whole purpose was to find one other family like ours. Yeah. And then I know that that's blown up now. I think you have close to what, a million followers at this point? I'm so close to a million. And I'll tell you, I've never cared about numbers. It's never been a goal of mine. But that million number is so exciting because 
I mean, think of the people he's touched that, that his story, I mean, that just brings tears to my eyes. I'm hoping this will push you over that edge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I heard that you also have started a nonprofit. I believe it's called the More Than Prof, uh, the More Than Project. Um, so I want to ask you: Was that influenced by the fact that you were raising an autistic child? Is that directly related to that? And tell me a little bit more about that program. Yep. So during COVID. Um, you know, services ended for families like ours. I mean, they really truly ended for everybody, but it was, it hit harder for families when you have a child that can't learn via Zoom and needs, you know, one-to-one in-person therapy or in, in-person schooling. And you also take away the little support that families had. So during COVID, families or moms specifically were reaching out to me and they were saying, I can't do this anymore. Seriously, I give up. I mean, I saw and heard things that were just heartbreaking and you know, what do you do? We're all isolated. So my friend Amanda and I, her name is Amanda DeLuca, and she has a page called Jackson's Journey, Jackson's Voice. She's a master IEP coach. She's amazing. We came together and started the More Than Project. And our sole purpose was to bring free mental health counseling to caregivers via telehealth. So we um, met them in their home, you know, online, offered them services, and it was life-changing for them. Then when the COVID pandemic slowed down a little bit, counselors weren't able to counsel all across the United States. So it kind of changed the landscape a little bit. And then we, you know, we're still offering that, but we morphed our mission more into in-person events for caregivers. That's awesome. So it's kind of also like respite in a way. It's not really the respite care, but it's like the respite break. <laughs> because Yeah. That's connect, so, right? Yeah. You know, I think, um, you know, we're all going through similar things. They may look a little bit different, but all of us moms and dads are going through similar things. And there's something life-changing about not feeling alone and having someone who understands and someone you can message. So our goal is to just do these, you know, face-to-face connections. That is so important because I know that at least, I mean, I'm in a rural area too. We recently moved to a rural area from an area that was a little more suburban. And since we've moved, we've lost like all our connections and there's really very little, if anything, like once you move out there, there's like nothing available to the special needs community. I mean, not just autism, but like just special needs across the board. So that's awesome that you're doing that. I'm really, really excited about that. Yeah, thanks. I just talked to a mom on a Zoom on Monday who's, so I live in Minnesota and she's like on the Minnesota, South Dakota border. And she was saying how her other children are are struggling, which I went through too with my son Sawyer. And how do we, you know, navigate this dynamic? And I was telling her how important it is for her to connect her son with other siblings. And she's like, we have the only autistic kid in the school. And I was like, no way. And she's like, we do. We're that small. And that, you know, it just blows my mind because it's, it's so prevalent. But I mean, how isolating to, to have the only child in, in, in the town. Yeah. And I mean, even if there is another autistic kid, the chances that that kid is like your kid is slim to none. So exactly. it's not super helpful. I mean, I have two autistic kids and they're very different. <laughs> their right. needs are different. Their their strengths and weaknesses are different. So that is amazing that you're doing that. Um, So let's go ahead and dive into Forever Boy, because I know this has been doing phenomenal on Amazon. I've seen your reviews. Everyone seems to love this book. And I can say that when I was diving into it, it is really relatable, really down to earth and really honest. So um, let's go ahead and talk about that. And 
what inspired you to want to kind of put these thoughts down onto paper and get that out in the world? Yeah, so I have, um, since Cooper was two and a half, when I started blogging, I was sharing little snippets of our life. And as he got older, and it got more complicated, like, you know, battling the school district or trying to figure out this aggression or figure out just kind of the more nuanced things. It was harder to write about because what happens when you write for a blog is people just drive by and read it and then they either cast hate or cast love or, and I was just kind of burned out by it. I was like, I want to tell our story in its entirety that can help another family. So by putting it all together, I was really able to share the narrative and control the narrative and show that he does have a hopeful life and a joyful life. Yep, we have some struggles, but he's going to do great. And you just need to see it from start to finish to know where he was to see how he is now. Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of like adding context to the story because I know I'm, I am so sure that you've run into this because the world of autism on the internet is really difficult to navigate. There's a lot of like pushback with certain topics. And like, um, I can see how if you're blogging and you just got these snapshots, how people can take that out of context and make assumptions without really fully understanding the story. So I guess that's a smart way to approach it. Just lay the whole story out there. <laughs> yeah. So um, I did get an opportunity to read it. And I I found myself, you know, as I was going through the book, I was really kind of like nodding along. Um, I found it really relatable. And there was a couple of key moments that kind of stood out to me. Um, one of them was there's a line that you mentioned about feeling the disconnect between yourself and Cooper. I think this was on page 36 of the book where you said, it was so challenging to connect with him. I knew his sounds, his expressions, and his cries. We didn't have words. And even though I longed for them desperately, I credit the lack of verbal communication for bringing us close. And that to me was like, you know, that that hits the nail on the head. That's exactly the connection issue that we had, particularly um, with my first one, who was completely disconnected from, it seemed like the entire world. So I, I wanted to kind of ask you, what was that journey like for you going from feeling kind of like utterly disconnected from your child to finally getting that sense of closeness? Because I didn't see that it does end optimistically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am entirely Cooper's person. Uh, I, I joke that we have an umbilical cord tethered between us. He's actually upstairs right now. And as he's entered his tween years, the umbilical cord stretches farther. But I would say <laughs> for a lot of years, he would be sitting right here, you know, blaring his iPad. And, and, and I always, the way I describe Cooper is he's always near but far. So, you know, if we're at a park, he's sitting at the perimeter of the park. If we're at the beach, he's, you know, he's there, but he's, he's far away in the sand. So in the beginning, I, you know, I was utterly and still I'm utterly obsessed with Cooper. He is my firstborn. He is the most like, cutest, most snuggliest little thing. And it was hard to reach him in the beginning because he just seemed just so entirely in his own world. And we would try, my husband and I, desperately to enter his world. You know, let's see what you're seeing when you look at the clouds. Let's see what you're seeing when you, you know, put the sand through your hands. But you know, I, I, I could watch him, but I didn't know what was going on in his brain. And there's a part of the book that's, I think, really powerful. Every night when Cooper was, I would say, maybe two to four, we would lay with him. Um, we would take turns and he didn't need us to lay with him. He wasn't a child that needed that. We did it so we could hold him and we could just touch him and like pour our love into him because for the, you know, 
zillions of hours. It seemed like he was awake during the day. He never stopped moving. He didn't engage. It was, he was so wrapped up in technology. And then there was a switch where, you know, he, we just learned to understand each other and communicate. Like, I know that, you know, ah, ah, ah is Dora or dad or donut. I know which one it is because I know his sounds and his gestures and his, the movements of his eyes. And I think a lot of parents can relate to that. You just learn to read your child and you don't need the words. Yeah, that is that is so true. I think the hardest part is like at the beginning when you haven't had the time yet because you're just now being exposed to those things. You're just now realizing, oh, wait, there is a pattern. There is a way I can pick up on that. I think that's the hardest part at the beginning is like recognizing that it's not entirely hopeless. Like there are other ways to communicate with your child. What was well, that kind of like aha moment for you? Um, well, I had a therapist say to me, a wonderful speech therapist, her name was Laura, I can still see her. And I think Cooper was four. And I was still holding on to like developmental delay. I was still holding on to speech delay. I didn't know that a child could be non-speaking or non-verbal, whichever you choose to say. I, I truly didn't. I mean, I knew that there were people who don't don't speak verbally, but I couldn't see any reason why Cooper wouldn't. And I didn't know enough about autism, right? So she pulled me aside one day and she was like, you need to start thinking about a speech device. You need to think about other forms of communication. And I remember, you know, I was just crushed. I was like, I cannot say goodbye to this hope. And she's like, there's different hope. And it was a really powerful moment for me to see. Yes, of course, I expected words. I grieved words. I wanted words. But there's this whole other, you know, out here. And Cooper and I communicate perfectly now. And I would say he has 30 or so words, speech device sign language, sounds, gestures, but it takes time. It takes yeah. time. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't think I caught it in the book, but was it that he just never had words or did he have words and then regress? Because my kids each were different. One of mine, like it was particularly heartbreaking because she had picked up mama and dada and she was waving and then it disappeared. Like it, it just went away. So those stories break my heart. So when you're in my position, I'm sure you can relate to this too. I, I hear stories every day, countless stories. And Cooper never had words. So it never developed. He never babbled. He has incredibly severe apraxia. So while he does have some words now, they'd probably be hard for you to understand just because it, it doesn't sound like it should. So we never lost them. We We just never had them. And when I hear these stories of these kids regressing, it, I'll be honest, it terrifies me a little bit because I have a 17 month old and I, um, she's so vocal now. And I, I sometimes will think about like, what if she just stopped? And I mean, it, it's, it, it hurts me in the tummy. I will say though, for my girls, like after that 17 month window, I mean, it seemed to happen like right before that, around that 17 month window for both of them. Um, and I feel like that's what's common. So you hopefully will be safe by now if you've passed that window. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I know that like, you know, this is a really challenging process for parents and of course for our kiddos. So how would you recommend that parents approach feeling the similar disconnect that you described that you had with Cooper with their own autistic children? Well, what I try to tell parents is you're going to go on this big transformative journey. You really truly are. You're going to become a different person. You're most likely going to become a better person. You're going to um, just change entirely. And I like to say for the better, but it's a lonely journey. 
It is. I mean, even if you are surrounded by people, I have a great husband, I have great parents, he has great parents. It was still pretty lonely, you know, because I was going through something that no one else could really understand. And what I tell parents is to keep your child at the center of every decision that you make. So keep their happiness, keep their, you know, search for as much independence as they possibly can. Is this the right decision for their life? And there's a lot of times that we would try things that just weren't right, right? Because we feel pressured, like adding in another therapy or, you know, I'm just trying to give an example, whatever it may be. And it was like, we don't need more. We need more joy. We need more play. And so just really keep them at the center. Yeah. I know that that's um, been something that we navigated to of like trying to balance, find that balance between like, okay, what do we give up? What do we not give up? Um, And actually speaking of that balance, um, on page 39 of your book, you mentioned how you ended up having to cut hours at work in order to spend more time with Cooper. Um, I know from like my experience, you know, oftentimes parents do have to sacrifice work in order to be there for their autistic children and bring them to all the therapies that they need or give them the one-on-one support that they need. So my question for you is in retrospect, after having made all these choices and moved on and landing where you are now in life, do you find that this was a well-worth sacrifice? And if you could go back in time, would you do that again? Why or why not? So, yeah, you know, that's uh, people don't, outside of our world don't always understand that, that typically one parent is going to have to stay home. Cooper was kicked out of multiple daycares. I mean, kicked out. They're like, we don't, we can't handle this kid. And so, you know, he was starting, you know, full-time therapy at age three, different programs that he he really did need. And you got to drive them. You have to be there. You know, you're, you're running to and from. I have always identified myself with my work. I was a project manager for a lot of years for a big nonprofit and then PBS. And I love working. I, and plus we were a two income family. We needed it. I mean, that's what we needed to survive. So I had to cut back. Um, I think at first I cut Fridays and then I cut Wednesdays. So I ended up working like 32 hours in three days or whatever it ended up being. I really would work longer hours or work in the evenings. Of course, I would do it again. Anything to help Cooper, you know, he's thriving now. And I think it was all those little decisions that got him where he was. But I'll be honest, it it was hard for me to to um, let go of a little bit of who I was because I loved working. <laughs> and I have four kids now, so I'll tell you, it's I feel it with all my children. So it's like, let's is it time for daycare yet? Because mommy wants to work. <laughs> See, like I, that's funny because I'm kind of like the opposite. Like I work full time, and I'm like, oh, I wish I could just be home. But you know, yes. it's kind of like that grass is greener syndrome. It's like whatever it you're doing, you want to do the opposite. <laughs> And I always like give huge props to stay at home moms. I think stay at home moms are like the most amazing people. I'm like you and your projects and your laundry that's done and your meal charts. Like you're amazing people. That's just not everything me. looks like Pinterest. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I love you guys. Like I want to be, we always want to be what we're not. Right. That's like, true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I know like for me personally, one of the challenges that I have run into having two autistic children is that initial anxiety of like whether or not they'll be able to develop a healthy sibling relationship. Um, you know, that's 
not just because they're both autistic. I mean, you could have just one autistic child and just looking at that dynamic with a neurotypical sibling is also um, kind of like a stressor. It's kind of like um, on your radar in terms of like, is this something I need to be worried about? Are they going to be be able to have a friendship, a sibling dynamic, even sibling rivalry? Um, I found that when I saw my kids fighting, I actually was happy about it. Because Mm -hmm. initially they were ignoring each other completely. So I guess my question for you there is, I know that you mentioned in your book, I think this was on page 65, that Cooper didn't initially acknowledge his siblings. And I think that you even mentioned that you would um, notice that he would scream at the idea of even touching his brother. So my question is, how has their relationship kind of evolved over time? And what would you tell other parents like myself who struggle with kind of getting that sibling relationship developed? So a big part of my book is actually about Sawyer and Cooper. They're two years apart. And um, when the book came in the mail for the first time, when I got like my, my pre-order copy, um, Sawyer, my son Sawyer was like, what's the book about? Like, I mean, obviously like, he had been paying attention. I was like, it's mostly about you. <laughs> he like loved that, but it, it really is a lot about the sibling relationship. And if you follow my Facebook now, my Facebook page, finding Cooper's voice, a lot of it is about that sibling dynamic and how beautiful this relationship has become between these two brothers, but it took a long time. And I can relate to everything you just said. So Sawyer's two years younger. He fell in love with Cooper when he was six months old and just sitting up, you know, just watching him. Cooper, he didn't even exist in Cooper's world. And as time went on, you know, Sawyer would, you know, toddle behind him and touch his DVDs or his iPad. And Cooper wasn't ever mean to him. He just didn't care to even acknowledge him. And in a way, that's a blessing because we didn't have aggression. So that was a good thing. And Sawyer from, you know, three years old was asking me questions like, why doesn't my brother love me? Why doesn't he like me? Um, I'm angry. He was, he had a lot of anger. We had so many people coming to our house, social workers, therapists. And I have this beautiful story where he crawled up on my lap one day and grabbed my face. And he was like, mom, can we talk about Sawyer now? Can Sawyer have autism so I can be, you know, so I can be important. And I remember thinking like, I'm messing up here. Like I am just failing. So, you know, flash forward, we have four kids and we work really hard to speak to all four of our kids' hearts. And while we are not perfect parents, and I think we make a lot of mistakes, one thing we do do well is give each of them time. And it's probably at the sacrifice of our marriage a little bit, I'll be honest. But I want Sawyer to see the blessings that Cooper brings to our life. And I, I really, truly think he does. And that's developed over the years. And, you know, he still has big questions. He'll say to me, he goes to Catholic school and he said to me not that long ago, um, he came home and he's like, I was at mass and I told God that I was mad that Cooper doesn't have a voice. And and I just encourage him to say those things because they're real. It's like, yep, I understand. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause like, um, when my oldest child was diagnosed, so she was diagnosed probably close to 20 months old. Um, so my kids are 11 months apart and ours are close. Yeah. 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 And so my second kid, um, the first one was diagnosed. And then my second kid, I had no idea she was autistic. We, we were just now kind of starting this journey with the first one and they were so different. That yeah. I was like, okay, well, if this is what autism is, then clearly yeah. the other one's not autistic. Yeah. Um, 
And so it was interesting because the first one wouldn't really talk to the other one at all. Just like you were saying, like wouldn't acknowledge them at all. Wouldn't like pay any sort of attention. It was like they weren't there at all. And so I thought that maybe they wouldn't create this uh, relationship. And I started getting concerned like you, like I was saying, you know, we spend all this time and energy on the autistic one, but we have one that's neurotypical and I need to make sure that I'm putting time in there. It's just ironic that... (laughs) She ended up being autistic too. But I remember going through that at the beginning of like, how do you approach this? How do you, mm-hmm. how do you still spend? Cause by default, you're spending more time with the autistic one because they go to the therapies mm-hmm. and you're spending all these extra hours. So like, how, how do you balance that? Have mm-hmm. you found, how you found that challenging? Cause I would assume Cooper probably is doing a bunch of therapies too. So this is the, the people often chuckle at this. So Cooper is our easiest child now in our home. I'll be perfectly honest. He is 11 and he still has the same diagnosis, severe level three, non-speaking autism, anxiety, all that stuff. But at home, he's so comfortable and he's so calm and he's so happy that he's just easy peasy. And I always, I I describe him as like the nucleus, like we just revolve around him. And Sawyer, our nine-year-old is in hockey, two different leagues. So he takes up a huge chunk of our time now because we're trying to navigate his sports and his schedule. But it wasn't like that in the beginning. So I have a sentence in the book. I have this letter to Sawyer where I say something like, you know, I nursed you in every waiting room in Duluth, Minnesota, while your brother received therapy. And the reason, you know, Sawyer spoke so early and advanced so early is because he was getting free therapy because <laughs> he was, you know, it was like bonus. But I will tell you, I have real worries that I'm going to miss something with one of my other kids because I pour so much emotional energy into Cooper and worrying. And we actually just had something happen. We realized that Sawyer was way behind in reading during the pandemic and we had no idea. And it's, you know, every night I'm on the floor working on Cooper's letters and puzzles and numbers. And here I have this other kiddo that I had no idea So I really beat myself up bad over that because I was like, how did I miss this? And um, that happens a lot, I think, because we pour ourselves over here. So I'm trying to spread myself four ways. (laughs) That is like so relatable because like my oldest one, um, she's one of those uh, like hyperlexic types that like she taught herself to read at two. Um, She's four now doing multiplication and like all this stuff, self-taught. And so as we got kind of caught up in all that, we completely kind of like forgot that the other one was like, oh, wait, we're not doing all the things with her that we did with the first one. And I think part of that is having, like, I feel like everybody always treats the firstborn a little extra, you know what I'm saying? But I think you feel like, like he was like, Sawyer was so in my mind, how do I, how do I word this correctly? Like he was neurotypical. And he picked up on things so fast that I just assumed he knew everything. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, Cooper, like we had to teach him to drink from a cup. We had to teach him to get our attention. We had to teach him to sit. We had everything like hold a fork with Sawyer. I remember he was like eating cereal at age two with a spoon. And I was like, you're a genius. (laughs) (laughs) So I work really hard. And I think this is really good advice for parents. Don't overlook the easy child. Because they need just as much. They just don't show it. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because like mine were both autistic. So instead of having that, I had kind of like the reverse. So I I didn't realize that she needed help in certain areas. And I assumed she was neurotypical. So it was kind of like the reverse. Yeah. 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 So 
I wanted to also just to get back to your book real quick, because I, I know that on page 67, you also talked about how there was particular therapies that you found that were not really helpful to Cooper. Um, and you kind of thought that they felt a little bit redundant or ineffective. I personally have also seen this happen um, with my kiddos. And so in your opinion, what are some things that you feel that parents can do if they're getting kind of that like mama gut or papa gut where they feel like they're not really getting the best therapy for their kid? What do you think they can do to kind of like advocate for their kids when it, you know, something seems off? So I didn't like advocacy didn't come easy for me. Like I, I, I'm a very much a go with the flow. Doctors are always right. Teachers know everything. That's just who I am. I'm Minnesotan. I'm Minnesota nice. I would never go against, I mean, if someone yells at me, I cry. I mean, to this day. So my first experience with advocacy, I knew that, um, Cooper had something wrong with his stomach. Like we were dealing with some, not to get weird, but some severe, severe constipation, which is often common with kids on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't get a doctor to help me. And I was like, this is, something's not right here. So like, you know, I Googled and it was like, ask for an x-ray. And I went to the doctor and they wouldn't give me one. And I said, I'm not leaving without an x-ray. I like whispered it because I was like, not brave. And it was a stare down. Like we stared at each other, me and Dr. Billman, like we just stared at each other. And I had like a screaming Cooper and a screaming Sawyer. And I'm like, here we are, I guess we're staying. And I was right. I was right. He did have a lot of problems with the stomach and that x-ray was life-saving for him. And I remember thinking like, am I happy I'm right? Am I happy that, you know, like what are my feelings here? Cause like, it was so conflicting. And I tell parents now, always trust your gut. My gut has never been wrong, but it's not always the easiest decision to make. And an example I give is there's been multiple times with Cooper, I think is what you're referring to when we just stopped all therapies. So what happens is like, you're doing so much OT and so much PT and so much speech that you're almost not a family and you're not a, your, your child's not a child anymore. And you're, you're a therapist instead of a mom. And so multiple times we stopped and like went swimming and played outside and became a family and human again, but it's not always the easiest decisions because you're scared, but trust your gut. Yeah. I think the toughest part there is also like when you are kind of sacrificing some of these therapies, you then have to be like, okay, which one do we cut? Like, which one do we skip? You're kind of doing that game in your mind. Like if I pick the wrong one, is it going to impact them this way or that way? And then some parents start doing that like self-blame spiral did yep. you ever feel that you went through that? So I was just at, so I host a caregiver's retreat every year for a couple hundred special needs moms. And I just had this mom come up to me not that long ago. And she was telling me how she blames herself for her son's autism. And I just assumed that her son was like two or three. Cause that's what I often hear from moms of younger kids. Her son was like 18. I was like, so I said to her, like I hugged her and I'm like, you've been carrying this self-blame and this guilt for 18 years. You didn't do anything wrong, you know? And she just sobbed and she's like, but I blame myself for, you know, whatever the reasons were, it doesn't matter. And I was like, you didn't do anything wrong. And you're an amazing mom, an amazing advocate. And just like validated her. I didn't go through that necessarily. Um, and I'll tell you why. Early on, I went to an autism support group. And I wanted to like sit with moms and like cry and like talk and 
become best friends, right? And like laugh. And and I I was sitting in this circle, literally a circle, and it was like angry moms, like mad, like mad. And I I I got up and left and I never went back. I'm like, I'm gonna go to the bathroom. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be an angry mom. So I left. I want to enjoy my, you know, and and um I haven't looked back. I'm like, we're gonna look forward. That's so interesting because I actually run like a monthly parent support group and I find that the people in my group are kind of like chill like you. Like we, we, we hang out together to laugh. Like we swap stories, like it's uplifting and positive. I can't imagine walking into something like that. Like this. So I was like a new mama and like this, like sweet, a lot of grandparents here in Minnesota, like raise children with disabilities. Like it's, it's, I think it's probably pretty common across the world where so when, you know, the mama can't do it. So grandparents step in and this like sweet grandma was like, I have a autistic grandson. He's a really big boy. I need help finding a pediatrician because um, most doctors can't handle him. And it, very valid question. Like one that we've had ourselves. Cooper's a very big boy. And like someone like next to her, like took her hand and like stabbed at her leg and was like, do you believe in Western traditional medicine that's poisoning our kids? And I was like, <laughs> like, like I gotta go, but it, but it terrified this person. Like it terrified her. And I just, I just wish that we could just wrap people in hugs and be like, you're going to be okay. We're going to figure this out and we're going to move forward. Yeah. I love that about you. Like the positivity that you bring. Cause I feel like finding Cooper's voice is always so positive and uplifting. And I do feel like there's kind of a fine line there. Cause we, I mean, we obviously do need to be empathetic and understanding and we've gone through the heart, like the, the hurt and the dark and all that. But like, you know, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And I, I love that you bring that out. Yeah. I remind, it's like the last page of my book and I read it in every presentation that you know, once you've made it through, if you make it through those hard days, those hard moments, help a new mama. Seriously, because you're the only person that knows what they're going through. It's a very unique grief. It's a unique feeling. It's different than you can't even describe it, right? So help them. And I think I think we're cultivating that culture with things like this. Absolutely. We really are quite like-minded <laughs> when it comes to that. Um so um, I also had a question because this is also something that I have struggled with as well. This is kind of when we talk about navigating IEPs. Um, and so there's this part of your book on page 71 where you talk about the struggles that you've had with autism evaluations in the education system and how you as a parent have felt dehumanized in some of these meetings. And I will say I have been there. It's definitely a frustrating experience. Um, and it does. You're right. You mentioned in your book, it takes a toll on parents' mental health. I, I couldn't agree more. So if you could, after your experience, basically recommend the school IEP team, let's say you could talk to a school IEP team, they're completely open ears, and they're going to change their program to accommodate whatever it is that you would like them to do. What is it that you would want them to do? What is that one change that you think that the education system should make in order to kind of like be more effective with this process? Oh, gosh, I have so many. I do a lot of presentations to special education teachers, but I will say the one thing that baffles me the most about the, uh, the whole special education experience. And I, and, and I want to also add, I'm pro special ed, pro public education, pro teacher. So I'm not against, I'm thankful is what I want to say. Same team, thankful. Is that often there's so much focus on what our children cannot do. So 
IEPs are often written um, just in a negative context, just because that's how goals are written. It's it's everything they cannot do. And and I, you have two children with autism. I have, so Sawyer's neurotypical and at his conferences, you know, he's sitting there right with me and it's an hour of how, you know, all the things that he can do, right? Of course he has some struggles, but it's like the opposite side of the spectrum. And it's like, why can't it be like that with Cooper? So when he started fourth grade, he had a new teacher and I went there and for 20 minutes, the first 20 minutes, she told me everything about how wonderful he was. So I'm a jokester. So after like 20 minutes, I was like, cut the crap. I was like, give it to me straight, you know? And she was so funny. She was like, Kate, he's amazing. She's like, yes, he has challenges. Yes, he has struggles, but I'm not going to, you know, bury, you know, bury you with every single thing that's hard. And it, I seriously cried because it was the first time someone had spoken positively about him. And I don't know if teachers quite understand the importance of their words. Yeah. Yeah. I I totally agree with that. Like we just now started putting our kids in that process because they're, they're three and four. So they're just now starting that special education pre-K program. And it has been frustrating because Mm -hmm. it is very kind of, clouded by negativity and it does seem like at least from what i've observed there doesn't seem to be a lot of like oh they accomplished this thing so let's celebrate that it's more like well they accomplished this thing once out of four times let's work on getting it four out of four times and so i just feel like there definitely does need to be a little bit of a reevaluation there because it seems like it's it's like work for like, I don't know, like a job performance where they're getting that like review at work. You know what I'm saying? Like a performance review and everyone else is getting ice cream. Like, Yeah. Yeah. And I had a post many years ago when Cooper was in kindergarten about how it takes a strong heart to have a child in special education because things are just different. And I do, I have seen huge improvements. I mean, Cooper's 11, he's a sixth grader now. But back then, it it wasn't sunshine and roses. It wasn't new backpacks and my first day of kindergarten sign. It was diapers and noise-canceling headphones and how many aggressions do we have? I mean, it's hard. We totally attempted the first day of school sign. So did <laughs> it didn't me. go well. It was, I mean, it was a lot of funny pictures. Yes, <laughs> but I don't, yes, I don't yes. think we got a single one where you could see the name and the face at the same time. <laughs> yep. Very same. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... I, I'm I'm wondering because I know like through your book, it kind of I got the impression that you did go through like a caregiver burnout period. I don't mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you explicitly call that out, like with that phrase, I can't recall, but I know definitely the experiences that you shared in there to me illustrated that there were times and phases of caregiver burnout. Um, and so my question is what do you think parents can do to focus on their own mental health? Because I know that being a caregiver can take a toll on somebody's mental health, their physical health. Um, I know for me personally, after I had both kids, I gained a lot of weight because mm-hmm. I couldn't have time to like focus on that. I used to go to the gym all the time and then you're spending all that time with therapies. So what would you recommend to parents who kind of struggle or let's say they decide to kind of neglect their self-care because they want to care for their child first? So I was absolutely a caregiver in crisis. And when I give my presentations now that, you know, to groups, I, I hit on that topic heavily because it's not something that's talked about. It is very much shamed. It's very much shushed because as parents, we're supposed to pour ourselves a hundred percent into our kids, right? That's what, that's what parents do. The level of parenting that 
I was doing alone because spoiler alert, my husband and I did get divorced and were apart for a year. We got remarried to each other and went on to have two more kids. So happy ending. But I lived alone. I worked 50 hours a week for PBS. I had a big job and I was doing a lot of Cooper's care by myself because again, I was his person and I stopped answering text messages. I stopped returning phone calls. I wasn't sleeping at all because Cooper would start every day at 3 a.m. or 2 a.m. He was a bed stripper, a hoarder. He wanted the lights all off. He would break light bulbs. He would put everything in the bathtub. He would line up chairs. I could go on and on. He was very, very um, behavioral in those years. And it was because he couldn't communicate and he was in a lot of pain with his ears and constipation. And there were reasons that were very valid, but hard managing it alone. My home was not my safe space. and. I lost entirely who I was. I won't lie. So I got incredibly thin. I didn't even recognize myself. I didn't sleep. I drank a lot of wine at night after he went to bed. I was hard on myself. And I had no one in the outside world that I let in. What I try to tell parents now is stay connected. Don't isolate yourself. And that may be someone to text. That's someone to FaceTime. I'm not saying you can get out of your house, but... Just have someone that you can talk to because once you truly isolate, it's hard to come back from that. Yeah. And I can imagine like one of the things that I talk about is we tend to neglect our mental health thinking that we're doing the best for our kid. But the thing is, if we're pouring everything into our kid and not taking care of ourselves, that directly impacts our ability to take care of our kid. It impacts our ability to have patience with them when they're having a meltdown or to be able to think on our feet if we're going to try to, you know, help them with some sort of transition or something like that. So I think that's true. Oh, sorry. And if we don't talk about the impact on caregiver mental health, that's when we start having parents that are dropping their kids off at the hospital when they're you know, harming their kids, their things are going to happen because there's not support for these parents. So that's really where Amanda and I are pouring our energy into is helping these moms find a safe space to talk and share and get the support they need. Absolutely. I think that's really, really critical. I think that actually lines up nicely with my next question because our podcast is called Embracing Autism. And we picked that particularly because we feel that we're at a time in history where we have to work beyond just acceptance of autism, but really learn how to embrace autism and embrace autistic individuals. And so what I want to ask you, and I I ask all my guests this because I'm very curious as to everyone's different answer. What do you think that embracing autism means to you? Where and how could we get to that point as a society? Well, that's why I share. So when I Googled severe nonverbal autism, the day Cooper was diagnosed, so I went home, you know, tucked him into bed, went on Google late at night. And what it brought up was dark, grainy videos on YouTube that were just terrifying. That should not have been on YouTube. They were not showing this favorably. They were not being kind. They should not have been on YouTube. And when I look back on that, it terrifies me because why should it... When someone searches the diagnosis, why should we immediately serve them up with this negativity? I want them to find Cooper. I want them to find a little boy riding a horse for the first time and saying saying Dora for the first time and hugging his sibling. And um, there's enough negativity out there. There's enough uphill battles for these individuals with disabilities. They're going to have them their whole entire life, right? Let's 
embrace these differences and share it and put it out into the world. And for me, that really started when I met Cooper where he was at. I stopped trying to change him. I stopped trying to make him someone else. He is exactly who he was born to be and um, just loving him and meeting him where he was at. Yeah, I do. I do agree with you that I feel like it is also kind of just like this cultural shift that needs to happen. I think YouTube is a reflection of society, right? It's a reflection of what people find valuable or what people think is truth. And so we need more voices like yours to, you know, kind of be out there with the megaphone saying like, there are other stories, there are other sides, there are other perspectives. And that's Mm -hmm. a lot of what we we do too with the the podcast we like to share like there is a different perspective and that perspectives can change you don't always have to be stuck you can i mean it's by all means natural to start off in this dark place when you don't know anything but i feel like knowledge is power Mm -hmm. yep so um I want to just wrap up here, but before I do, I want to give you an opportunity to share if you have anything that you would like to share that perhaps I did not ask you. Um, well, this was awesome. I would love if anyone is interested in our story, uh, grab a copy of my book. It's Forever Boy by Kate Swenson. It's on Amazon. That's the cheapest place to get it. I always like a deal is worth it. (laughs) And um, just know that, you know, our story is still happening. And we're at age 11. I don't know what the future holds for Cooper. And I hope to keep sharing and inspiring and giving hope. Uh, I really, really think that you are definitely doing that. And I think your huge following definitely attests to that. I think parents are following you for a reason. Um, And I think you really shine a a nice beacon for parents. Um, So where can my listeners find you? Are you on social media or what's the best place for them to find you? Yep. So I share a lot on Facebook. So Finding Cooper's Voice, Facebook, Instagram. And um, I have a newsletter that I love sharing and love writing. Facebook has really taken a shift towards video. I'm sure everyone can relate to that. So um, I've started writing over on Substack. It's a just search Substack and then finding Cooper's voice. And you can sign up for our newsletter. And I share pieces every week, just glimpses inside our world. So everyone, you heard that. You see it on the bottom of the page. Go ahead and follow her so she could get to that million. (laughs) And um, again, just to remind our listeners out there, we will be giving away two of her books. So don't forget to comment and we will look through the comments, draw two random winners, and we will reach out to you. Um, We will have Kate send you out a copy of her book. So thank you, Kate, so much for coming onto our podcast today. It was great having you on the show. Thanks for having me. This has been the audio from the Embracing Autism podcast live stream series. Please check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at Autism Wish to catch these shows live. Otherwise, stick around next week for our next episode. This is Embracing Autism.